the other thing is varying the workout stimuli, you know, trying to stay out of that, that what they call the gray zone. So not doing all your workouts in that sort of moderately hard zone. That Triathlon Show, episode 32. Welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and today's interviewee is none other than Mary Beth Ellis, one of the biggest names in uh, long-distance triathlon over the past few years, 10 years or so, that she's been, been racing as a professional triathlete. She's now retired and has moved into coaching, and that is what we're going to talk about today and uh, all her tips that, that she has to give to age group triathletes like the ones that she coach but also of course like you most of you listeners so Ma mary beth uh, just to give you a brief intro has won something like 11 ironman titles she is an idu long distance world champion and she has finished in the top five at the ironman world championships as well she also holds the record for the fastest full distance triathlon time by an american woman which was 8.43.34 that she set in Austria in 2011. So she has a long and, and illustrious career with uh, training for Brett Sutton, for whom she's now coaching at Trisado, and uh, also Cyril Lindley, so two of the greatest coaches in the sport of triathlon. So uh, as you can imagine, with those two co being, being her coaches at different parts of her career, she has picked up a thing or two that hopefully you can learn a lot from. Yeah, let's just dive right into the interview and uh, and then we'll give, go back to the key takeaways after that, shall we? So on today's interview on That Triathlon Show, we have Mary Beth Ellis. Mary Beth, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be on. And uh, for those listeners that may not know about you, can we just start by briefly going to your background? You're a former professional triathlete, but uh, recently retired. But uh, just to give us an overview of what you've been up to in your triathlon life. Yeah, as, as a professional, I had a, really enjoyed doing triathlon. I raced professionally for about 11 years and had the most success in the long distance racing. Since I retired last year, I've been coaching under Brett Sutton with the Tri-Sutto group. I'm going to have a mix of some pros and age group athletes and really enjoying that transition. Yeah. And where did you come from uh, originally go, going into triathlon? Because you didn't come right out of college, did you, and start racing professionally? You had another background. Yeah, I actually, I swam and ran in college and then post-collegiately, I just ran uh, mostly marathons and half marathons. But just kept getting injury after injury. And finally, a, a, the final straw was tearing my joint capsule in my hip and having early arthritis in that joint. And the doctor just recommended not running that much. So I did my first triathlon when I was 29. And um, I did three races and turned pro right away. And um, yeah, the rest is history, as they say. Yeah, and that's uh, when I was reading up on your background. That's that's why I asked you about it because I think that's pretty a great story that that you can at uh, at age twenty nine find triathlon and and go professional. And obviously, not everybody can do that. You had a great athletic background anyway, but but I mean, there's it's never too late to start. That's the point I want to to bring across that that you can actually 
even at a slightly later age than what would be expected, make a great, great career. And, and you have had a long, a, a long career with many, with many wins as well. And just reading through your title bio, you have, uh, is it 10 Ironman titles and uh, an ITU long distance world title? And you've finished in the top five at Kona, the world championships for the Ironman distance? Yeah, I, I actually had 11 Ironman titles. I don't think it's quite up to date, but yeah. Otherwise, all, all perfect. And then before I started doing long distance, I had some success at 70.3. I was second at the 70.3 World Championships twice, too. Yeah. And you've also been doing the ITU type racing for a while there as well, I heard. But uh, that's uh, a good good overview of your career and what you've been doing as a professional and, and before that even. And now what I want to get into is more of the applicable advice that we can get to to the listeners of the show, because that's the way I, I like to structure these interviews to get as much uh, advice, basically, for the listeners as possible. So you're the perfect person to bring on now that you've switched into coaching. And as you said, also coaching some age groupers. Uh, how has that transition been so far with going into coaching? It's been a learning process, both for, for me and the athletes. I've had close ties still with Brett and getting advice from him if I ever have questions. And then with the age groupers, a lot of times it's bouncing around their life. I mean, they have families and jobs and limited hours to train and we want to limit the stress on them. So it's it's definitely an, an interesting balance with the age groupers. With my pros, I can obviously throw in more training and I don't have to worry as much because they have plenty of time for recovery and rest. But with the age groupers, it's definitely a balancing act that, um, you know, working together, we just have to keep the communication going and make sure that, that they're telling me, you know, when it's too much and, and listening to them and getting the feedback from not only the objective feedback from their their um, devices, but also the, the feedback on how they're feeling and their subjective um, feedback. So how does that work in practice? Do you even like uh, get a message from, from an age grouper saying, I'm feeling really tired today, or I have a meeting that came up that scheduled for tomorrow that wasn't on my agenda. How should I switch these things around now with these new things that I'm feeling or having on my schedule? Does it work like on a day-to-day basis that you switch things around for them based on, on those sorts of things? Oh, def- definitely. And, and that's a typical day where you know things come up or you know, they're traveling for work and they get home late and we need to adjust the next day. But it's, it's such a balancing act. I have a couple athletes that work night, the night shift, and um, that's just really hard on your body as well. So kind of adjusting around, around that schedule um, and making sure they're able to get the sleep they need after, after work, whether it's a night or a day shift, Um, you know, it's, it's such a balancing act and you really do have to be flexible when you're dealing with age groupers who have a lot of stuff on their plate. What's the level of the age groupers that you're coaching? It's definitely a, a wide variety. I have some who are at the top of their age group and some who are, um, you know, trying to do one of their first 70.3s or first Ironman. So it's a range of athletes. And yet yeah, it's, it's definitely catering to, to what they can fit into their schedule and, and what their experience is, um, how new they are to the sport. So everybody's so individual. Yeah. So that balancing act, do you find that it's... Uh very different depending on the individual that for some you need to really hold them back and for some you need to like maybe hold them hold them a bit accountable that they don't like skip trainings too easily or or is it generally one way or the other in general i find most of the athletes are very type a and self-motivated so rarely do i have to really push them most of them are you know that the high achievers um they aren't doing the sport you know, they, they want to succeed. So it's not, they don't need me for the motivation. It's more often that I do have to hold them back and, and make sure that they don't dig themselves into a hole or try to do too much. 
Yeah. And and this is actually a, a very good topic and on a bit of a tangent, but uh, not really. One of the things that I get asked the most from uh, the readers of, of my blog and, and the podcast listeners is about time management for and, and they are age groupers just like the ones that you are coaching. So have you found any really good tips and tactics that triathletes can use to manage their time and and try to get their training in as as best as they can. I think a priority should be sleep. Um, and that's something that I try to stress with my athletes is that, you know, you're not going to get in the quality training session if you're skimping on sleep all the time. So I, I think it, sometimes it's better to opt to skip that training and make sure you're getting enough sleep. And everybody's a little different, but you know, when you're training hard, you need more sleep than the average person. And if you think you can go on five hours of sleep normally, if you're training hard, you need more than that five hours. And I just think if you get that recovery time, it's going to pay dividends in your training sessions. So I I do think prioritizing the sleep and the recovery is important, even when you do have that limited time. So I'd opt for less training and more recovery for most of the, the top athletes. Mm. Is there any kind of uh, general amount of training in terms of hours per week that you're, let's say, the people at the top of their age group training for half and full distance triathlons that they, they do for you? Can you give any rough guidelines it, for that? Yeah, it really is so individual depending on their experience level, um, their commitments with work and family. So it's really hard to generalize. It's easier almost to generalize with the professionals than with the age groupers. Just The age groupers, I think, just are so unique in their challenges and experience level and, and what they can fit into their busy lives. Mm. And But you, you have that background yourself, actually, as you mentioned briefly about your running background at post-collegiately, you were working full-time, weren't you, at that point? You, you have a, a degree in industrial engineering. Yeah. And actually, early in my professional triathlon career, I was working full-time as well. So it's challenging. And I, I think the, the hard thing is balancing that, that rest and um, recovery with the training. And a lot of times for me, what went out the window was any kind of social life. I pretty much train before work, work, and then train after work and then go straight to bed. And I think a lot of athletes can do that for a while and get in decent amount of volume, but it's definitely, you know, you need to, to take a break from that and have time to be a normal person for a little bit too during the year. Yeah, it's uh, mentally fatiguing if uh, if nothing else to just go going to be being becoming a triathlon monk essentially and and not having time to do any any sort of social social life if you want to do that. So uh, yeah, that's a good point. What about um, another question that that I came to think of now that you mentioned Brett Sutton that you that you trained for for a couple of uh, periods and then you had Sir Lindley as well who is another one of the top triathlon coaches out there so what are the main things that you have learned from the two of them during your from training for them and and racing as a professional i I was really lucky to work with siri right when i first started my triathlon career and she had a a great group of itu athletes and i learned a ton from her as well as from the other athletes in that initial group i was in i had rennie carfrey was there and um lauren groves who went to the olympics and sarah true now went to the Olympics. So uh, not only did Siri teach me so much about triathlon, but then learning from the other girls and watching them, I learned a ton. In that initial period, you know, there's so much to learn so quickly that I was just a sponge um, picking up every day uh, how to swim, bike and run and treat it as a profession. And then when I went to Brett and focused more on the long distance career, I learned a little bit more about myself and, and focusing on what 
what training was right for me and not necessarily looking at the other people in the group, but also focusing a bit more on on myself and having the confidence to know what I was doing um, was the right program for me. And it was a little more individual as far as you know, what, what I could manage to do in training and then translate into the race situation. So, so how did you do that? Do you have any good examples? Um, well, an example with Brett is, uh, you know, he'd have a, a bunch of different swim sessions going on. And then, you know, you would some days, you know, you'd be with the rest of the group doing a hard session and other days he'd send you off by yourself. And um, he kind of had the right eye as to when was too much for one person and maybe they needed to go out for an easy ride by themselves or when to push, you know, there'd be days when you think you couldn't do another hard session, he'd give you another hard session, you'd have a breakthrough. Or, you know, on the other hand, there'd be days when you would want to work hard, and he'd tell you to go back to bed and take the day off and not leave your bed the entire day. So it was just trusting in the process. And in uh, myself was really what was the hardest thing that that he kind of led the path for me on. Mm. So Is there anything that uh, self-coached age groupers can take away from that? uh, Or or how can they learn about themselves as athletes? Do you have any any suggestions? I think it is hard to be self-coached just um, because it's hard to be objective with ourselves. And um, that's why I could never personally coach myself. I'm not objective with myself. I always, uh, it's a lot easier to coach other people for me than to coach myself. I can see with other people when they need the rest day. Whereas with myself, I'd always think I was being weak or you know, soft if I took a rest day. So yeah, I mean, with self-coach athletes, I would say maybe if you have somebody you're close to a training partner or a spouse that can kind of help you recognize when maybe you need it that day off or need to be pulled back. I I think it's hard for us to to see it without somebody um, from the outside looking in. Yeah, I would agree. And it's an Definitely not primarily about the knowledge, because you can have the knowledge, but as you say, the objectivity and uh, and just being accountable to both your training, but also to your resting. And, and that's what becomes so difficult, because as you say, you get... Uh, you get a sense sensation of being weak if you if you take a day off, but when you when you shouldn't really. So so that's that's the hard part, and not actually knowing what to do and making the programming and the planning. That's the the easy part. So. Yeah, good points. But uh, since I know that I want to dig in on this point a bit more, because I know that we have a lot of self-coached listeners in the audience. So uh, are there any things other than the rest, as you have mentioned already, that uh, you find yourself emphasizing time and time again to the athletes that you coach that uh, people in general need to hear? I think the other thing is varying the workout stimuli, you know, trying to stay out of that, that what they call the gray zone. So not doing all your workouts in that sort of moderately hard zone. And instead, you know, doing some really hard speed work that's short, but really fast to kind of stimulate that anaerobic system. Even if you're doing Ironman, I think that's a great use and value. Um, integrating strength work with hills, I think is great. And then when you're doing like an easy long ride, an easy run, keeping that effort really easy so that you're not, yeah, in that gray zone where you're just making yourself more tired and not getting anything out of it. And and that's where I do think sometimes for me anyway, a a coach helped because pushing me on those really hard sessions and and holding me back on the really easy sessions is hard to do by yourself. Yeah, that's uh, and that's that's something that I want to ask you about because this uh, going easy enough is, as you say, it's something that that many people get wrong. So can just to give us an example, what would you say would have been your easy run pace or bike speed at some points in your career compared to your race pace to to give people an idea of the range that you were training at? 
Um, it, it'd be a huge range. Um, and actually, if I was doing anything easy running or biking, I would leave the watch at home for me. Um, it was just mentally, I, I didn't want to know how slow I was going, but, but believe me, it was, it would be really slow. So like in a race, you know, you'd be riding, you know, trying to ride between 35 to 40 K an hour. And then that easy ride, you know, you'd be trying to keep yourself under 25 K an hour on the bike. But again, I, for me, I, I would leave the watch at home so that I didn't have because sometimes if I had the watch, I'd be trying to go too hard or trying to see how far I was going, which it's not really relevant when you're doing that easy ride or run. And I think a lot of times for athletes, kind of leaving the watch at home is is liberating for those easy sessions. Yeah, I would agree. But I also think it's eye-opening to hear that, uh, that range of speed that you were training at. So do you have any idea what your easy pace for the run would have been even when with leaving the watch at home? Yeah, I mean, I I think it just probably depends a little bit on the the hilly, like if it was a hilly run or not. But I mean, if it was a hilly run, you might be going as slow as nine to ten minute miles on some of the the uphill sections, and then um, you know maybe faster on the downhills. But just really keeping it easy and enjoying the scenery and um, enjoying the run rather than focusing on speed. Or I definitely would leave my watch at home for for those easy runs. Just for me, it was a lot more enjoyable, and I didn't want to know. If I knew how slow I was going, then I would try to go faster. So I needed to leave the watch at home just to keep myself from from doing anything silly. Yeah, but but that's for those people working in kilometers like I am. That would be like six minute kilometer pace or even slower. Yeah, yeah, or slower, and, yeah. Yeah, and your marathon pace, if you were running a three hour marathon or so, or even faster, what, what is your fastest marathon in an Ironman? Um, I've, I've, in Ironman, I ran a three hour marathon. Yeah, so that yeah, that's, that's around about there, so yeah, yeah. yes, and uh, so yeah, that 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 gives gives folks an, an idea of, of how how big of a range you really should have. So that's that's great. Anything else? Uh, the main points that uh, that people should take home. Any mistakes that you see people making frequently? Not uh, in addition to these, uh, not polarizing your training enough, or and uh, skipping on their rest. I think just giving yourself a mental physical break. At the end of the season, you know, just g- give yourself a little break, a little time to to recover from all the training and mentally a little break from triathlon, you know, go back, spend a little more time with your family, sleep a little more, eat a little more, and then come back to the sport refreshed. And you really, you might in the short term lose a step or two, but in the long term, you'll gain three or four steps. Yeah, and uh, I have a personal example. You can even do that within a season, even if it's not not completely stepping away, but just drastically reducing your volume. Uh, for me, for example, this uh, winter I was in January, I was training way less than I had been in October, November, December, and I lost a bit of fitness. But uh, then in the end, as I my volume ramped up, uh, I got so much fitter than I could have gone without that elongated break it was not just a rest week it was like three or four really easy weeks so it felt like this is not the way i should train and i was wasn't very confident at that point but i just trusted it and it was full credit to my coach simon Briarley, who had me do that i wouldn't have done that on my own but but now in, in hindsight it, it has really helped with uh with the overall fitness development for the entire season so so that's another thing that that in addition to to that postseason complete break yeah listener question that i want to get into is uh, 
effective training for long distance triathlons when you might have time to put in the volume but uh, you don't have time to put in extremely long single workouts like you, you can't do four or five or even six hour long rides with with brick runs or anything your let's say your longest single session would be three hours in total and that is a listener question from sam who emailed me and talked about it so i wanted to hear your take on that yeah i i think for iron man it is a little hard if you don't have some bikes and they don't need to be super long i think four hours is fine but um but yeah i mean that that's ideal but if you don't have time i think with three hours you can get in a solid ride i think you end up having to do those a little harder than somebody who has time for the four or five hour rides you know, I, I would treat some of those rides as easy and some of them, you know, put some threshold intervals in there and, and make it a harder ride just so that, you know, in three hours you're able to cover more distance than you would if you were just doing an easy ride. But but yeah, I mean, that, that's the thing too, where breaking it up, doing a couple rides a day is always useful. I, I think the two or three rides in a day, you get a, a great benefit from, from breaking up sessions like that or similarly on the run, doing um, a couple runs in a day you know, by that third run, you're really simulating how you're going to feel in an Ironman at towards the end of that marathon. And, and similarly on the bike, you know, second and third ride, you're feeling what, what it'll feel like in that, that Ironman or long distance ride. Yeah, that, that's uh, kind of what we were talking about as well in our email conversations, like pre-fatiguing yourself. So yeah. And uh, another listener question that I actually got a long time ago and I haven't had the opportunity to get into it yet. So, but now I think that you're a good guest to ask this question because you've been doing both the ITU style racing and long distance. So it's about just transitions in general. It's uh, Chris from uh, the Woodlands in Texas that's asking for tips about transitions and how to do them properly. So both ITU style racing and, and long distance style racing, what are your tips for that? Yeah. And, and it's actually, um, it's interesting because I think the long distance transitions are now with, with all the, the ITU athletes kind of moving in, you see those are just becoming more and more competitive. And I think you'll see in the future, you know, people don't sit down and put on their shoes anymore in, in Ironman transitions, but, but yeah, I mean, in short course, it was always fast and furious. And, um, you know, if you didn't get your wetsuit off quick enough, there goes the front pack or, you know, you didn't get your shoes on quick enough. Um, you know, there goes your chance at a top 10. But I, I think that with transitions, as, as with anything, it's practice. I mean, it's something that it's not going to come naturally. You just have to constantly be practicing those. And when I was doing ITU, that was something we practiced. And, you know, practicing the mounts, practicing taking off your wetsuit, practicing putting on your shoes. I mean, that's all stuff that once you practice it enough, then in a race, you know, it's something you've done so many times that you can be a little more relaxed and try not to rush too much. Instead, just try to um, hurry slowly is what I always try to think in those transitions. So you don't forget anything vital, but at the same time, you know, you're, you're not wasting time. Yeah. Okay. So it's, there's no magic solution. It's just, you can learn everything there is to learn from a two minute YouTube video, and then you just go out and practice essentially. Practice. Yeah. And I, and I think in a race situation, you, you pick up things from other athletes. I mean, seeing how other athletes have their shoes and how they put their shoes on and I mean, even just watching the ITU transitions in slow motion, you can learn a ton. They obviously are the top of their game in that. And I mean, when you move up to the longer distances, there's there's other considerations. Um, like I think it, putting on socks can be useful and changing your clothes can be useful where, you know, that's time, but it's also, it's going to pay dividends if you're more comfortable over an entire um, 180K on the bike or marathon run. Yeah. 
So final training coaching question is uh, your take on intensity and uh, how to include that in your program. What kind of intensity and, and in what sort of amounts for different types of athletes? I think there's always a place for really short anaerobic intensity. So we're talking um, intervals that are under a minute and just really increasing your efficiency, whether on a track, on, on the run or on a hill or on a hill on the bike or um, on the flats. Um, but that kind of interval, you know, you're not going to do any major damage and you're not going to be able to dig yourself into too big of a hole. Keep, But those short and snappy sessions really allow you to improve your economy and your speed and your efficiency. You know, I think it's a little more difficult when you move into the sessions that are um, the longer hard sessions that are really getting into your, is those really hard threshold sessions. So something like um, 10, 800s on the track where you can bury yourself are a little tricky, especially with, with Ironman training. I think with um, Olympic distance and sprint training, there might be a place for that. With Ironman, we more often would do longer longer tempo threshold sessions that were at or slower than the marathon pace you'll be running in the marathon. So it's kind of figuring out the right distance for you and, and making sure that you're, do, you're doing the short fast speed work and then any kind of threshold work, you just have to be careful that you're not leaving your race in, in the training. Yeah. And uh, let's th- then move into the rapid fire question segment. So what's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to triathlon? I really, I like to just look at all the, the articles. I tend to read, um, you know, articles on Triceto, but also all around the, the web, some of the articles with other professionals kind of sharing their views or the coaches out there. I think there's a lot of knowledge in the coaching world. Um, not just with triathlon coaches, but coaches across all different sports and, and looking at what maybe what you're doing in running or in cycling specific or even swimming um, and just seeing how that relates to what we do with triathlon and, um, you know, learning from, from them and from their mistakes and what, what they found works for, for their athletes. Yeah, uh, Trisada has really, really good articles. And that's uh, for those listeners that haven't found that page and blog yet today that's one of my go-to places for reading up on on great coaching tips and training tips uh what's your favorite piece of gear or equipment i have kind of one with each with each sport with um swimming i i really love my eeny buoy i don't know if you if you've seen those but they're big huge pool boys and they they give you good flotation when you're having one of those uh rough days in the pool or you've done a hard bike or run the day before and on the bike, I've been with Rotor. I was with Rotor towards the end of my career, and I I just think their chain rings are great, the Q rings. And then in the in the run, I'm pretty partial to on running shoes. I guess I started working with them, and just I haven't I haven't been able to try any other shoes since. So some of my basic favorites across all three are those any buoys the kind that you can uh, fill up with water to make uh, make it uh, more of a strength training workout and make it more difficult. Yeah, yeah, you can. Um, I don't know if I recommend that, but you definitely, or you can put any kind of drink you would want to drink out of it in there. But um, yeah, I mostly just use it as a regular pool boy. Um, okay, yeah. I, I, I know that former guest on on the show, Jerry Rodriguez, he uses some kind of pool boys that they fill up with water pretty regularly. And starting maybe without, but then as the they progress in the season, they add more and more, more and more water to that to to add to that uh, that strength component and really really making it a hard workout. Yeah, uh, I I think there's more of a value in using like a parachute over 
that pool boy just because if you're filling that pool boy with water, it can, it can kind of drag down athlete's hips, whereas a parachute gives you the same drag coefficient without pulling your hips down quite as much. But that's mm-hmm. you know, apples to apples. You know, it's basically strength is, is good regardless of how you get it. It's just I'd rather have my athletes keep their hips at the, the top of the surface. Yeah. So finally, what's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success? I think just continuing to to self-evaluate when I was still racing and being objective about what I was doing well and what I wasn't doing well and trying to continually improve. I think there's always a place for, you know, evaluating yourself and, and seeing what you are doing well and giving yourself a little bit of credit for that, but then seeing what you can improve upon and, and trying to work towards that and whether it's sports specific or something with your time management, just kind of doing the little little changes on a regular basis can help with long-term improvements. Yeah. And uh, so finally, where can the listeners find out more about you? And are you open to take on new coaching clients at the moment? Yeah, I've, I have a pretty small squad still. So yeah, I'm still open. Um, obviously, I'm on the TriSetta website under their coaching group and I still have, you know, Twitter and Instagram and, and my website as well and, and Facebook. So open to any of those methods too, if people want to contact me through any of those. Yeah. And you coach people worldwide, worldwide, I guess. Yep. Yep. Where are you based, by the way? It's uh, still Boulder? Um, no, we, um, last year we moved to New England for my husband's job. So we're out in Andover, Massachusetts. Okay. Okay, cool. Uh, any final piece of advice for the listeners or any anything that you want to add before we sign out? No, just enjoy triathlon and, and keep improving and you know, have have a great race out there this year, whether you're doing a sprint, an Olympic or, or your first Ironman. Enjoy every step and especially that finish line. All right. Thanks, Mary Beth. I'm sure that the listeners have learned a lot and uh, will find many things that they can take away from this episode. Thanks. So as you can hear, Mary Beth certainly has uh, the capability to become a great, great, great coach in her own right with with everything that she's been doing in her career and how smart she is and and knowledgeable about all things triathlon. So I'm sure that she will, and her, I know that she has the the target of actually becoming a a great elite coach like Brett and, uh, and Siri. And and I'm sure that she will, uh, she will accomplish that if, if she really puts her mind to it, because she has, has all, all the things in place to do that. But the main takeaways for me from this interview were two simple things. The importance of rest and sleep. And we've been talking about this a lot on on this podcast, but one of the better episodes that we have for this is really the one with Matt Dixon, which uh, was in episode 13, I believe it was. You can just go back and scroll down the archives and you will find Matt Dixon's interview. And and that's a great one to learn more about the importance of rest and sleep. And uh, and then the second thing is uh, maintaining your objectivity about your own training and and trying to and not becoming too emotionally invested in it uh, or like losing sight of of the overall overall perspective of your training essentially if you're a self-coach athlete you need to really put those things aside and not let yourself be fooled into thinking that you are weak or anything if you actually really need a rest day of course that can't be an excuse to make you skip training all the time or whatever but as Mary Beth said many triathletes are type A so so you need to just get to know yourself and know what type of athlete you are if you are the kind that 
rather does too much training than too little then that is going to be critical for your long-term success having the the capability to maintain that objectivity about your training all right that's about it for this episode um, just uh, as a quick side note uh, my racing season started a few days ago i'm recording this on uh, the 8th of june and uh, the 4th of june was my first race of the season which uh went really well at least uh, the swim and the run i was really happy with we were swimming in 40 degrees celsius water so that's uh, pretty rare but finland is a pretty rare country when it comes to triathlon our season is short and uh, it would be even shorter if we wouldn't be swimming in those kinds of temperatures that's just what we have to live with but that said we have had an unusually cold spring that led to that water i'm now looking forward to the sprint distance nationals which are coming up on not this weekend but uh, the next weekend so that will be on the 17th of of june and and that is one of my big goal races for the season so i really hope that i can have uh, at least as good a swim and run as i had in this last race but also put together a really strong bike and hopefully be in a strong group as well since it's a draft legal legal race so that's just a quick personal update from uh, from my side so because some listeners have been have been requesting that on our next episode, we have an interview with pro triathlete Jocelyn McCauley, who recently won Ironman New Zealand. And uh, But the topic of this interview will be pretty special, and it's a requested topic, actually by one of the athletes that I coach. It's uh, training during pregnancy and also after pregnancy and, and while then raising a toddler and, and how to how to do that, go about doing that, because that's something that Jocelyn has been doing. She trained the night before going into labor and then a week after her daughter was born she started training again and then did a 70.3 race 11 weeks after after her daughter was born so so it's uh pretty cool and uh i'm sure that for the female athletes especially this one will be will be pretty interesting to listen to as always if you have any questions about this episode or feedback or topic requests you can send them to me at michael at scientifictriathlon.com the show notes will be on that triathlonshow.com thank you for listening this show is nothing without listeners so i really appreciate you tuning in two times a week which i hope you do if not hit subscribe and you will automatically get all new episodes keep training smart and keep loving triathlon <laughs>